0: How's everybody going this evening? Um, I'm Christian Wagner, and this is Militant Thomist. And today, I'm with Dr. Jack Kilcrease. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, uh, your background, how you're interested in Lutheran Christology.
1: Yeah, I'm um, a Lutheran theologian and um, historian of Christian doctrine. I uh, teach at the uh, Institute of Lutheran Theology as a associate professor of historical and systematic theology and. Uh, I've written my own sort of systematic Christology. I've uh, written on other subjects like justification and the authority of scripture and things of this nature. And uh, Christology is a really kind of controlling, uh, strong controlling kind of interest uh, for me. So um, I'm always interested in having uh, conversations about this uh, from the perspective of my own tradition. So
0: So how much, um, because this will eventually later in the stream, take a polemical tone a bit okay but how much are you uh interested in the in the debates between roman catholics and lutherans and then reformed and lutherans on the uh subject of christology has that been a research oh, yeah, interest I mean, of I, yours
1: I, I, i've dealt with that um yeah i mean I've, in my uh christology book i've dealt with that quite extensively um, so
0: okay so for for the listeners out there that aren't too familiar with a uh, nice systematic Christology, will you will you give us a bit of a, a baseline to work off of that, uh, that all of the uh, Protestants, Orthodox Catholics are going to agree upon those points of agreement we have?
1: Yeah, um, uh, I mean, I, I would say that the basic agreement of, across the traditions of mainstream Christianity would be encompassed, I would say, in the first six ecumenical councils and the first six ecumenical councils affirmed that jesus is uh, true god um sharing divinity with the, with the father and the spirit and true man sharing humanity with everybody all the rest of us right um that um he though nevertheless is a single person meaning he's a single center of identity i guess is how i would I'd put it um that's what I think more the ancient term hypostasis means more than like um, personality or something like that. I mean, it's more a center of identity, um, who acts then through the two natures. So persons are agents, and they act through natures essentially. Um, and then the and the implication of that is that uh, his mother uh, Mary is indeed the mother of God because as a single subject. Anything that happens to him as man uh, obviously can be predicated to him as a divine person. So she is the mother of God. She's not the mother of divinity. She doesn't generate the divine substance or something of that nature, but um, she is his mother and he is God. So she is the mother of God. It's the third ecumenical council. And then the fifth and and sixth are sort of more fine tuning of this. Um, The problem that you have with, Facing people after the fourth ecumenical council, where it's affirmed that Jesus is one person but two natures, is that typically natures have person. <laughs> so, wouldn't he then be two persons, right? So, uh, the argument is, and this is again very sort of technical and obscure, that his humanity is what's called an hypostatic, meaning it has all the components of humanity. And has a hypostasis, but it doesn't have a hypostasis within itself. It is a, it's a person within itself. It it rather participates in and is incorporated into the already existing person of the second person of the Trinity. That's how the man Jesus, to, to get it more concrete, that's how the man Jesus can say things like, "Give me, Father, give me glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world." Well, is, is that the man Jesus? Did you, did Jesus exist before the foundation of the world? Well, no. Um, he is talking in. His person, which is the second person of the Trinity, and his human nature is incorporated into that. Right. So, the center. So, the center of identity of the human nature is the divine person, and then finally, um, because Christ is complete in two natures, he has a divine will and a human will. That's the sixth Ecumenical Council. Um, not because he's a some sort of two-headed monster competing. With two centers of identity competing with each other but rather that will is a component of human nature as a component of divine nature and he would not be fully human or fully divine if he didn't have two wills incidentally they're in, in total harmony with one another and his single divine person acts through his distinct wills as it acts through his distinct uh, natures so he's not a disunited person as a result of this uh, but nevertheless he has all the components of both Human and divine nature, meaning he must necessarily then have two wills, right? Yes. Now, so that was uh, okay.
0: that. you can go ahead. If you no, i just saying word.
1: I think that we would all agree on that. So Thomas Aquinas would agree with that. Uh, yes, John Calvin would agree with that, and the Lutherans would agree with all those things. So,
0: okay, so let's get into those uh, distinctively Lutheran aspects. And it is my understanding, at least, I've done an okay amount of reading on this on this topic uh, for a few papers I wrote in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Right. but it's my understanding that there's distinctive schools of Lutheran thought um, yes that there are so give us the confessional view and then some other kind of branches where there's some deeper speculation that goes goes off from that okay right. okay so really kind of the the different schools kind of arise in the
1: interim between Luther dying and then the formula of concord getting written. So, so the the so Luther um, the 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 distinctive argument that Luther makes is he takes things. His argument is um, okay if Christ is two natures and he's always God and man all the time, everywhere. Then it it logically follows, says Luther, that. Um, um, the human nature is present everywhere in some kind of mysterious sense, uh, not in the sense that like he's multiplied like infinite, infinitely or something like that. Like there's an infinite number of the man Jesus is filling all around, filling up all around us or something like that. But in some mysterious sense, the human nature is everywhere because um, if you said, okay, well here's divinity but not humanity, then you'd be dividing the natures. Okay, if you just said that he was he was God and man in the circumscribed position of the man jesus but not everybody else everywhere else he just hummed along uh, as uh, you know a fleshless god then luther says then you're dividing the two natures and uh this is possible uh for luther because uh, of his distinct understanding of what's called uh, the communicatio idiomatum which means um uh, the communication of attributes between the two natures so So a corollary of of Christ being united as true man and true God, or true God and true man—that would be better way of putting it—is that uh, there's a sharing of attributes between them, between the two natures. Not in the sense that one nature is is transmuted into the other, but in the sense that they participate in the in the realities of the other in the same way that, for example, um, um, your soul and your body are different are different from one another, but when your soul is in your body your body becomes animated when you your your soul is removed from your body the characteristics of the soul which is animation are removed and then you fall over into a pile of dead matter essentially right um so um so there's a sharing of the divine attributes luther says with the human nature by participation not by transmutation uh in the same way um uh, uh, he doesn't use this analogy, but later will borrow uh analogy that some of the Greek fathers used, which was when you put a, a piece of metal in the fire, it doesn't turn the piece of metal into fire, but it glows with the, with the fire within it, I guess you could say. It, it, it's heated. And um, this in part is, al- is also um, how he explains the idea of the right hand of God, so the right hand of God, there's no so, semi-local heaven. Okay, uh, The right hand of God is, since God doesn't obviously sit on the throne, it's God's power and glory, and God's power and glory are everywhere. So Jesus, the man Jesus therefore has to, in some mysterious sense, be everywhere. And this also o, then connects with his argument in favor of Eucharistic presence. He says, um, um, I don't know how Christ gets into the Eucharist, but we already know he's present everywhere according to divinity of humanity. So maybe that's how God gets him in there, okay? I don't know how he does it, but that could be the way because God could do it a whole bunch of different ways, but maybe that's it. So uh, that was an argument he used against um, Ulrich Zwingli and some of the Southern um, kind of proto-reformed reformers who like uh, Echolampadius as well. Uh, who wanted to say well the two natures don't really communicate with each other um, in any manner other than maybe verbally um, we might say there are these one person so it's okay when you glue two boards together and you could say that um, um, there's some characteristics of one kind of wood and one characteristics of the other the other kind of wood in the in the boards glued together but really they don't communicate with each other in the same way that like with the analogy with like fire and
0: uh, metal or something like that can and this so, be uh... Can this be taken analogously to uh, how we would understand theosis? That uh, there is a certain uh, divinization of us and oh, yes, our participation yes. with the Spirit in union with Christ, and that yeah. in Christ, this yeah. grace of union is held yes. par excellence because there's no uh, there's no uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? There's no barriers put in the way of it through of right. sin and of uh, mm-hmm. of flesh. Well, the and idea it's of just mystical a very union, very intimate union.
1: Mm-hmm the idea of mystical union is really important in later Lutheranism um,
0: and in Luther. And
1: uh, even, they even appropriate the language of theosis. Um, People like Johann Gerhard will quote the prestigious adage about God becoming man, that man becomes divine and things like this. So, um, so anyways, yeah, the reformed, uh, the early reformed, which are different from Calvinists, but the early reformed wanted to say there's no communication and heaven is this Location that kind of a system, and so Jesus's body would have to come whizzing past the planets to get onto the altar every Sunday, and so that's that would make it not a body, right? Um, because yeah. we'd eat them all up essentially over 2,000 years, and so, um, it, it's just a symbol essentially. That was so, so Luther was very, very concerned with rejecting that idea. Um, and um, when he dies, though, it moves into some different and kind of interesting phases. Um, so there ends up being two traditions that kind of emerge. One tradition is by an, another Lutheran reformer in Southern Germany, uh, in Swabia, where actually, actually my ancestors come from, uh, named um, Johannes uh, Brent or Brentius. Uh, he, well, I know his name. But, uh, and that one really um, uh, took Luther's ideas about the communication of the divinity to the humanity like to like 11 um so to speak um brentius's idea was that um uh the uh, humanity participated in in the attri- all the attributes of the divinity uh w- with the exception of being uncreated he didn't want to think that somehow the humanity was sort of absorbed into the divinity okay uh, or became kind of some kind of hybrid. He was he was actually concerned about um, kind of guarding against a kind of Eutychianism at that point. Not least because Luther had a late opponent called Caspar Svinkfeld, who did quite literally want to argue that humanity was absorbed into the divinity and, and actually promote a kind of Eutychianism. Um, and Luther actually kind of swung, swings back in the opposite direction of trying to emphasize the duality of the two natures in some of his very late Christological disputations that are just actually being translated uh, now. But Brentius, I mean, he's in very close proximity to uh, the southern reformers. And so he, this is really important to him, particularly uh, in terms of the uh, Eucharistic uh, doctrine. So he wants to say all the divine attributes are, uh, are c- communicated to the human nature. And um, how then does the human nature possess them? Uh, well, the, the human nature possesses them accidentally. So they're accidents. He wants to use this uh, language from Aristotelianism that they are um, that that the human nature is a um, subject of which the divine nature's attributes become predicates. And um, he wants to argue very oddly uh, from the perspective of later Lutheranism that, in fact, um, being circumscribed to a specific location is only an accidental quality on human nature. And so, human, na- human nature actually could literally be om- omnipresent uh, and not somehow cease uh, to be uh, human, which, again, comes rather perilously close, I think, to uh, kind of Eutychianism without maybe going over the line. So, that was one direction people went. And Brentius, he was way far, geographically far away from Lutheran, kind of, he was Lutheran, but he had definitely his own ideas. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was um, Luther's uh, co-reformer, never really bought into the omnipresence of Christ's human nature. He did agree with the idea of um, the divine attributes uh, being communicated to the human nature, though early on and gradually seems to have kind of abandoned it. But he had a number of students who were more loyal to Luther who then were uh, in agreement with this early position, but kind of wanted to moderate Luther's position. Uh, And among these would be uh, Martin Chemnitz and um, uh, a guy named uh, Tilleman Jesusius, uh, who actually lived in Heidelberg and kind of spent a lot of time brawling with the Reform people down there. Uh, And their positions are sort of more close, they're closer to the Reform position and a little bit farther away from Luther's position, but they still hold some of the uh, premises of Luther's position. Uh, In the case of Chemnitz, he wanted to divide up the communicatio idiomatum into three uh, genera um, called uh, th- that is to say um, three sort of categories of uh, uh, communication. So the first category was called the genus idiomaticum, and the genus idiomaticum uh, is that all the attributes of divinity and humanity are tri- can be attributed to the person when considered in what he called the concrete. Um, so he distinguishes between what's called the the concrete and then the abstract. Uh, this is a distinction I think that well it goes back to high scholasticism, uh, but I think I think it was Bonaventura who came up with this the first person. But 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 uh, the, but the concrete means in the concrete unity of the person as we look as as we uh, as we examine Jesus as he is concretely as divine and human in one person versus the abstract, which would be just sort of looking at what the divinity is in itself or looking at what the humanity is in itself abstracted from the hypostatic union right so i have a quick so question in, about uh, that yeah go ahead go ahead
0: so um this kind of sounds a bit uh, i was reading saint john henry newman he's referring back to uh, certain of the neo-scholastics and uh, mm-hmm. in the in the medieval church too in the, the Thomistic school and going all the way back to the agnoite in the in the early church those that denied um christ's uh those those who affirm christ's ignorance of of what humans may know and mm-hmm. they make this distinction uh between first and second act that christ was ignorant in his human nature but christ was not right. ignorant from his human nature is this a similar idea of what he's getting at
1: uh um, I, 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 I um, hmm. ignorant from his human nature, but not in his human nature. Um. Well, I mean, okay. So, um, if if you're going to deal with, for example, um, uh, let's say Christ not knowing things in a state of humiliation, if you're going to talk about the, um, in the concrete, you could say that Christ had all knowledge, since you could say that he. Um, uh had it as as god though i guess you could say that he didn't have it as man right or something like that um but if you abstracted the human nature and the divine nature you could say that he had it all as uh god but then he didn't have it as man or something along those lines i guess you could, is that kind of what you're getting at. i mean i guess
0: i'm yeah because the yeah. the uh the distinction between first and second act is going to be I that, um, is that there's there's a certain communication which which goes on Whereby mm-hmm. in the uh in the theosis which happens that there is an illumining with the uh the lumen gratia, with with that light of grace mm-hmm. illumining with, with the beatific vision itself, even to the, the, the human mind of Christ, something which isn't naturally inherent, but something which is communicated from the divinity to the humanity. That's kind of what's, uh, what's what you're getting, at. getting yes. at.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah, so you could consider yes Christ as just what substantially he is as a human right or you can consider him from the perspective of what is um right and that would be we might say um in the abstract okay so or you can consider him in the unity what he's get also then getting as from his de- his divine. i get what you're getting at, but yes that, that would be correct i think so right so um the uh yeah so the genus idiomaticum that would be that all divine and human attributes are attributed to the person of christ in the concrete so we're talking about the concrete here the concrete unity of the hypostatic union then the second one is called the genus up the which is a mouthful and that means that all acts in the concrete right can be attributed to the divine human person right so it's it's possible to say in the new testament does say this you know God, uh, you killed God or the word of glory was crucified or this man created the world. Okay, this doesn't mean, of course, that would not apply to the abstract, of course, because as God, God can't die, of course, Um, just like human. The humanity of Christ was not present at the creation of the world. But because in the concrete unity, Christ is one person, the one person did these things. And so whatever happens to one nature can be attributed to the other uh, in the concrete unity. So it is appropriate, again, to reiterate, to call Mary the mother of God, right? Because in fact, the New Testament says, she's the mother of my Lord, and the word is just not a polite title in that context uh, uh, when she's talking to Elizabeth, or Elizabeth is talking to her rather. Um, So she is the mother of God, again, not because she generates divinity, but because she is the, the mother of the subject Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. So, now the last one is then the most uh, controversial one, which is to say, which says, in the abstract, that is to say, considered in itself, the attributes of divinity are communicated to humanity. Now, does this mean then that the humanity is somehow transmuted into divinity? This is not that is not the case. No, um, the human humanity of Christ shares in the attributes of divinity by participation it's deified by participation, its essential attributes are not altered. Would that would, would that not then not lead us to say that, it would be more appropriate to say that in the abstract, um, it does not show the, the attributes of divinity? Um, well, Chemnitz would say no, because of the anhypostatic nature of the humanity of Christ. Even when you're considering the humanity of Christ in the abstract, you're considering it as, um, the human nature of the logos um, who is in union with it, right? So really, in a sense, even when you're considering the human nature in the abstract, you're considering it in, in, in the concrete, right? So um, now uh, Jesusius, um, uh who was similar to Chemnitz, he got nervous about this. He didn't like that very much. Uh, and so he said, um, no, when we talk about the abstract, we're only really talking about the essential attributes of, of a nature. And so we couldn't really say that. Um, but nevertheless, he. this is more of a verbal distinction. Later, Lutherans realized that there's really not any difference between his position and Chemnitz's position. It's just as a matter of how you're going to use terminology. Um, in both, ca- in the case of both uh, Jesusius and then Chemnitz, they reject Luther's idea that uh, Christ is, and Brentius's idea that Christ is, is omnipresent according to his human nature. Um, what they say is that he's potentially, Omnipresent, according to his human nature, this is what's referred to as the multi-volley presence. So um, Jesus is always with his church because he says, as true God and true man, because he says, well, i I'm, well, I'm with you to the end of the age." Okay, uh, he's all he can be present in the sacraments whenever he wants to be, um, but he isn't necessarily present everywhere. He is he's present when and where he wants to be, right? Because the humanity is united with the divinity and therefore shares in the possibilities of the divinity, and the, which means also the possibility of being many pra- places at once, in some kind of mysterious sense that we can't really talk about or explain. Um, um, and so that was a more, much more sort of moderate position. And people in northern Germany and Saxony ended up kind of taking that position. And people in sort of southwestern Germany, the, the Lutherans and southwestern Duke, ended up kind of taking the more the position more like with Brentius and closer to Luther's position. Um, uh, Jakob Andrer, uh who ended up writing the formula of Concord with Chemnitz, took a position more similar to, a more refined, but very similar to uh, Brentius's uh, position. Now, how does it work out that in the formula of Concord? Well, the formula of Concord devel- um, explicitly affirms uh, Chemnitz's three uh, genera that I just discussed. Um, wow. There's a debate about whether it affirms the absolute omnipresence of Christ human nature. It, it definitely repeatedly says that Christ can be present wherever he wants to be. So some people have taken that to mean that Chemnitz's position ends up actually winning out, even if later, many later Lutherans don't miss, necessarily interpret the formula of Concord that way. So um, there was a guy named Franz von Frank who wrote a book called in the 1860s called The uh, Theology of the Formula of Concord. Who, that was his interpretation. So that was in german uh, lutheranism the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries that was a very uh, influential interpretation uh, other people in my um, denominational tradition typically read the formula of concord as affirming the absolute omnipresence of christ human nature in accordance with luther's position um, the reason for that is that it also then even though it, it in terms of its own confessional statements it repeatedly says it can he can he can not that necessarily is but that he can uh, it quotes Luther repeatedly um, on this point and uh, statements of Luther that affirm the absolute omnipresence. And in one case that stating, of course, his logic that you would be dividing the two natures if you denied the absolute omnipresence of Christ human nature, right? So, uh, and indeed, Jesusius later on when asked to sign the formula of Concord says, I can't sign this thing. It affirms the absolute omnipresence of Christ human nature. So people definitely interpreted it that way at the time. Um, So uh, other positions, a third position might be Edmund Schlink's position um, in his book, The uh, Theology of Lutheran Confessions, as a 20th century Lutheran theologian. Um, And his interpretation is that that they don't even bother trying to reconcile them. They just add language that affirms both positions and then just sort of hope everybody can read it the way they want to. Um, I don't know that's a very satisfying. Uh, response myself not one I agree with either but nevertheless that's his position so in any
0: case. So can you unless you have anything else to add, do you have no, anything else to that add? that's just the so,
1: basic in Christology I mean.
0: So can you tell me about uh the term ubiquitarian? You yeah I think it would be ubiquitarian. ubiquitarian. I've only read it. Yes I've only read it because when you're reading uh Roman Catholic sources and reform right, sources yeah. you'll mm-hmm. get this term uh used against Lutherans
1: yeah. That's, that, that, that's us. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, some, yeah, sometimes the doctrine of the absolute omnipresence of Christ is called um, ubiquity, but that's not really a um, good term for it because that makes it sound like Christ's humanity is somehow spatially extended, which is not what Luther means at all. Um, one important uh, idea that he takes from late medieval scholasticism is the idea of multiple modes of presence. Um, and there's, uh, in Occamism, um, there was essentially three modes of presence. There was, uh, and, and Aquinas uses, I mean, this is not just Ockham, uh, Aquinas uses a very similar kind of reasoning to this as well. Uh, there's um, circumscribed presence, which would be, I'm, I'm just here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, circumscribed in this location as a concrete entity. Then there is um, definitive presence. Um, definitive presence is how um, a soul is in a body. It Does it take up space? Well, no, but it's in my body and not yours, right? So so it's a kind of presence, but a presence that, um, you know, doesn't take up space, in, 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 per se. Uh, I think Aquinas uh, uses a different term, but he descri- he does have the same concept where he talks about how an angel is in a house, right? Does an angel take mm-hmm. up space? Well, not really. But he's in your house and not in somebody else's house, right? So. Uh, and then there is what's called repletive presence. And repletive presence is the uh, a kind of uh, mysterious um, omnipresence uh, that divinity has, right? It, where it can be present uh, anywhere. Uh, some later Lutheran theologians also talk, add a, a kind of a sacramental presence, a kind of fourth mode of presence. Um, and Luther made it very clear that when he talked about Christ's human nature being omnipresent, he didn't mean it in the sense that his circumscribed presence was infinitely multiplied. Uh, that would be that would be ubiquity. But rather that in the, some kind of mysterious supernatural sense that that Christ the man shared the repletive presence of God. Um, he that descended, ascended that he might feel all things. You know, um, no one has ascended except for he that the Son of Man who's even now in heaven. Right. So Um, So he would put verses like these uh, to argue in favor of that position. Um, And, uh, you know, also talk about how uh, Christ was present in different modes to the disciples after the resurrection. Hmm. Um, Right. I mean, walking through walls and appearing and disappearing. Well, uh, Eck, uh, I believe even the Catholic camp, Eck uh, brought up that with when he was attacking Zwingli as well. So uh, Catholics have made that observation as well, that there's multiple modes a presence so that when we receive the eucharist certainly receiving the substantial body and blood of christ but it's not like i say well i'll take an arm and you take a leg or something like that that's that would be kind of circumscribed presence right so um,
0: have you uh have you read bellarmine and uh his work on on christ uh no i haven't actually there's uh there's actually a 50-page section against Mm -hmm. the ubiquitarians but i i haven't I haven't read it yet. I I have. The read, book, uh, I should but say,
1: I, in Gerhard, uh, I've read um, him quoted extensively um, in response to the Lutherans, right? So, because Gerhard is, and every single page is responding to Bellarmine, So,
0: yeah, I think there might have been um, a little bit of misunderstanding uh, oh, going yeah, on, or or at least that because I mean, during during Bellarmine's time, at least there wasn't as hard and fast uh, confessional. Um, confessional enforcement as as we would like there to be. And there was still some uh fringe groups being uh smashed within the various uh Protestant kingdoms. So uh how would you so the argument that I would that that I usually get that there's two of them against Lutheranism is right. that first the extra Calvinisticum, so the infinite I mean the finite with finite cannot contain the infinite. Mm-hmm. so what what is your general uh response to that um the, the the finite cannot contain the infinite um
1: well i mean one that's not in the bible <laughs> it's from uh neoplatonism but um but i would say if the if i mean just on the level of reason i mean um uh a fine i mean if something is infinite it obviously contains infinite possibilities one of which would seem to me to be born by the finite right so Um, uh, Gustav Alain was a Swedish theologian Lutheran theologian 20th century he he said actually it would be better to say that the infinite was capable of the finite then so um, so that would kind of be my response I would also say I mean there are I mean uh, scriptural texts I mean like the the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily I mean what do you mean by that I mean in him that dwells the all the treasures and the wisdom of God I mean like what do we refer what are that what's that referring to I mean so, I mean, in some mysterious sense, yes, I mean, the finite is capable of the infinite. I mean, the infinite God is contains within himself infinite possibilities, including um, right in the finite. And the finite and the infinite are actually opposed to one another. God made his creation to be the vehicle of his infinite goodness. Um, and so, actually, in that sense, in so far as Christ, or in that Christ is, is the vehicle of the infinite God, he's actually fulfilling the supreme... Uh, uh, goal of what it means to be a creature to uh, receive all of god's infinite uh, goodness within yourself right through mystical union so
0: so uh, the the second argument is going to be that this goes against this this uh makes the term human nature or or a certain set of of attributes predicable to a subject that mm-hmm. makes that makes the, the fact of a human nature to be completely null and utterly uh insane to say that this it, it's essential to being to having humanness mm-hmm. that one in a certain mode is is finite or has a certain uh, local presence that is uh, mm-hmm. constrained in a certain sure. area. So how, how would you go against that uh, argument that's brought up?
1: I mean, well, theres I mean, there's a couple of easy ways. I mean, one way is just to point out the resurrection narratives and um, obviously Christ has a glorified human nature that isn't constrained, and he doesn't cease to be human, okay? But he's not restrained to the normal categories of time and space. And the Reformed did genuinely feel the weight of all those, which is why, um, you know, uh, if you read Calvin's Institutes, he'll make really weird arguments like, um, because, you know, in Matthew, like, the, 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 the earthquake happens and the angel rolls away the stone, and then Jesus is already gone you know okay well how did that happen right if he's constrained to the and so calvin says that um the stone was w- rolled away a few hours
0: earlier jesus kind of ran out and then the angel covered it back up it's um it's like how but, liberal theologians read the miracle accounts right yeah the disciples or, were giving them bread outside and it was just about right, sharing yes,
1: right yeah paulinus um yeah or with with Dingley, I mean, with you know, appearing with the disciples when the doors are all locked, and he says like he kind of made like a hole in the in the wall, and then like covered it up again with the supernatural power or something. And when my when my wife, she attended the Calvin College, she said that uh, they said that uh, the going theory was that he um, supernaturally created a key, so he could open the door to the the disciples. I mean, none of this is in the Bible at all. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, so obviously. And that, that doesn't negate him being human. It just means that he's 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 glorified in the way that we'll be glorified in the resurrection as well. I mean that's that's the fulfillment of human nature. It's not a negation of human nature. Uh, the other I mean the other points that I would make is that um, um, you're people are sort of using preconceptions of what human nature is capable of and what it's not capable of. Um, you're letting um, essentially we might say philosophical definitions of what it means to be substantially human to inform how you read Revelation essentially, um, which again is is necessary and useful to an extent. But on the other hand, when it, when it means that you're gonna have to start um, chopping up text to make them fit these categories you're using, then that becomes, I think, a bit problematic. This is why Luther in some of his later disputations on Christology and then also the Trinity, which are really fascinating, Uh, he talks about what's called the new language of faith he says that like god takes up our words and then gives us a kind of new language of faith um so that um uh words that have sort of normal philosophical meanings uh get redefined when they're used in um theology uh he says so for example in philosophy if you read aristotle he says um how Aristotle defines being human how he defines being God is perfectly useful, but um, it doesn't really work when you talk about the incarnation because, by definition, God isn't man and man isn't God, right? So, but then God creates a new situation. He create he does something surprising. He becomes human. So now, uh, in the in the language of theology, humans can be God and God can be humans, right? So can be human, right? So. So the vocabulary gets redefined and what it means to be human gets redefined um, over what it meant, let's say within the, we might use the term language game of uh, philosophy or any other academic uh, discipline. Right. So, uh, so I think, I, I think that's actually a very interesting and kind of uh sophisticated way of, way of dealing with it. So,
0: okay. So everybody listening right now, um, if you have any questions, send them in the chat. Now I'm going to have a few more uh things that i want to go over and then we'll uh we'll get to questions so um where i wrote it? okay so do you do you believe because i'm i'm, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with uh, lutheran christology as we're yeah. as we're going on this conversation so do you believe that the lutheran reading of the fathers is a more satisfying reading than the reformed reading of the fathers when it comes to christology
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, in the early church, there's a lot of different trajectories of a tradition. I think that the Reformed, in some sense, can see greater continuity with the Latin tradition, though I think that they take some of the ideas in it to the extreme. I don't, obviously. um, Well, I mean, I guess that this is how I read it. Maybe you can just you'll disagree with me, but it seems to me that going back to uh, Leo or even some of the North African fathers that there's more of an emphasis in the Latin tradition on the duality of the two natures. Now for them, of course, that doesn't exclude uh, the real presence by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but there's still this greater, I think, em- emphasis. If you read just like the Tome of Leo, like he likes to divvy up like what God Jesus is doing as God and man and so forth, mm-hmm. greater emphasis. He talks
0: about in accordance to one form and in accordance yeah. to the other form, there's the actions happening.
1: Right, right. So, um, so I think that the reform people can say, can say, well, okay, the, 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 I can see them as being in that trajectory, but then taking it <coughs> kind of in a direction that the Latin tradition would—I don't think the like Leo or any of them would ever really want to take it. Um, <coughs> I think um, <coughs> Lutherans can claim continuity with people like Cyril. <coughs> um, but um, it certainly in the way that he talks about the communication of attributes or just even the suffering of God in Christ. Um, the kind of the, the theopasite um, formula, which again is another big emphasis. I mean, uh, reformed people oftentimes complain about Luther and Lutheran tradition deifying the human nature of, of Christ, but it it really runs both ways. I mean, Luther is also then very much into saying God really is in our sin and our degradation, like in solidarity with us. Like, it's not like Jesus is going around walking 10 feet off the ground or something. He's really suffering. A lot. It's it, it, Through him, God is really suffering with us, right? So, and um, Cyril, too, um, I'm thinking of the, um, I think it's the 12th anathema against Nestorius, like that's something he emphasizes that although the, the, he's, he's a classical theist, of course, as Luther is, that the divine nature doesn't suffer when you consider it in the abstract. But as Cyril says, it, it's, it suffers hypostatically, right? So in other words, the person of Christ generally does mm-hmm. suffer yes. to the nature. And I, I think you can see that continuity. Though, again, what Luther does with it and what Cyril does with it are a tad bit different. I mean, in both their cases, there is an emphasis on... Um, mystical union, particularly in Cyril's um, writings on the Gospel of John, which is uh, very, very, he very much ties his Christology to a kind of Eucharistic piety, um, that it's by consuming Christ's deified body that we ourselves are in some sense deified. Um, the emphasis in Luther is on mystical union, but the mystical union is less um, absorbing divinity into ourselves, though that seems to actually be an element in, in Lutheranism, Lutheranism. But it's more on the surety of the promise, that if that if God himself is literally physically giving himself to you, you can't be any more certain of the promise than if if that's happening, essentially. Um, um, the Also, the interesting thing I find is that um, what I've read in a number of historians of the early church is that um, the takeaway that people had in terms of Cyril's um, Thero- Christology was to emphasize since humanity could bear divinity to really kind of increase Marian piety and also um, the veneration of the saints. Uh, whereas for Luther, it, it kind of ends up running the opposite direction. Not to say he denigrated Mary or anything like that, but um, no, he had a very um, high Mariology actually. Um, uh, uh, but of course, uh, that means that Christ the the takeaway is essentially the opposite thing that the crisis is absolutely unique mediator and that you should, you know, certainly admire the saints as great people, but not, you know, venerate them or anything like that. And and at least not in the sense of historic Orthodox or Roman Catholic piety. So, um, so it's interesting how they end up going in kind of different directions with the same premises. So,
0: okay. So um, there's oftentimes this discourse can get a bit heated Right, and there'll be charges against lutherans that they're a bunch of dirty monophysites sure there'll be charges against uh nestorians you know <laughs> reformed that they're a bunch <laughs> of dirty nestorians do you think there's mm-hmm. any weight to this or do you think that any any such charge charges should just be uh should be left for the true heretics <laughs> um I think it's i mean i think
1: it's a little unfair i mean i, I don't agree with Reformed christology i don't think it's i think it's rather unfair to say that they're nestorians um i think zwingli is pretty close but i think it would it's not really very fair to calvin um calvin does calvin has a completely um as far as chalcedon as i understand it goes it seems to me that calvin has a that falls within a range of Chal, possible chalcedonian uh, positions I, as a Lutheran, I would say that he doesn't then draw the appropriate um, inferences from that. Uh, that he that the, the mistake is that he doesn't um, draw the logical conclusions from that, which to me would seem to be the uh, Lutheran uh, understanding of the communication of attributes. Um, but I but I see that as just um, like a, a limitation of the position. Um, I wouldn't say that he is somehow denying the unity of the two natures or something like that. I mean, I I, don't think that's very fair to to Calvin. Um, I don't think it's fair to call Lutherans uh, uh, monophysites because again, there is, so, because I mean, again, there is um, an understanding of the communicatio edimana, which I don't see as being any different than most of the Greek fathers. I mean, it's just a more refined statement of it. Um, Of course, you do have the absolute omnipresence, which I think is as far as I can tell, is not really something that I can know any of anybody else arguing in favor of prior to Luther. But I think it's the, lo- the logical conclusion of a certain understanding of the uh, of the communicatio kat- idiomatum, as well as the reality of the possibility of multiple presences, which the Scholastics already had established in their disputes about uh, the Eucharist. So, um, so I think that the, it, though it may be a new development, it's a development in continuity. With the stream of the earlier uh, tradition, and I don't think it warrants the claims of monophist tripping over the words, but
0: yeah. So, um, <clears throat> what I what I found to be very interesting is that I believe, at least, uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what you think is mm-hmm. that iconography. Um, not even just speaking about the veneration of icons but strictly the difference between the lutherans and the reformed when it comes Mm -hmm. to the making of images of christ is that it's really odd that it did go the way it did because the the reforms um their fundamental argument is that you can't image image god Mm -hmm. and the so do do you have any do you have any thoughts um on on that just difference between the lutherans and oh yes
1: well, I think and it's a very good thing you brought it up because I think it does say a lot about um, uh, Christology and the trajectories of the differing Reformations. Um, uh, uh, there's a Lutheran theologian, Paul Hinlicky, and he makes the observation that um, what makes the Lutheran and the Reformed Reformations different is um, uh, their understanding of idolatry. Fundamentally, so uh, and so that what they're, they're so what they, the problem they have in the late medieval church is they feel that there's a lot of idolatry in the late medieval church, but how they evaluate it is really really different. For Luther, the problem is that um, the late medieval church doesn't give you certainty about um, uh, salvation. Okay, so um, and then gives you and then tr- tries to set up other things. Things other than Christ at, to kind of give you that kind of certainty, right? So um, that's his problem with relics and, you know, the cult of the saints and all this kind of thing, uh, and then the penitential system. And so the solution for Luther then is to God, to, is is to God to make himself really sort of trustworthy, right? So that, that you have assurance of your salvation, which will then break your addiction to things that aren't God, right? Um, so then that means... God becomes more tangible. So it means not not getting rid of sacramentalism, but becoming like hyper-sacramental. In fact, uh, a lot of Luther's discussions in terms of the doctrine of creation sound quite almost panentheistic at, at certain points. If you read the Genesis commentary, it talks about how all the creatures are God's masks and how he's promised to channel his goodness through them. And how you can rely on that, um, and so forth. And they talks about this in, in the, with the sacraments and also Christ. So you can really cling to Christ, and you can really cling to the sacraments because God is really deep in the flesh, and you can have real assurance because God has made Himself like your object, basically, that you can cling to. For the Reformed tradition, the problem is um, that humans confuse the glory of the eternal God with something created. Okay, and so. The trajectory then becomes kind of the opposite. Okay, we'll get rid of cre- as many creative things that are cluttering up um, your relationship with God, essentially dragging God down to the level of a creature. For Luther, God wants to be at the le- uh, through present with you through creatures. He says the problem. That's actually how he evaluates uh, sin. He says uh, God wanted. He's talking about um, Adam in the Garden of Eden being promised to eat from all the trees of uh, the garden, except for the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, well, God at that point wanted to be present to us through the peach, right? But that wasn't good enough for us. So we wanted things that are when we, we wanted to move beyond creation and go to the real spiritual realm and, and interact with God directly. Uh, but for the reform, that's precisely what you want to do at a certain level. Because again, you, you don't want to confuse uh, God is, uh, you know, you don't want to confuse God with these temporal idols. Uh, So when Calvin talks about superstition, or I'm sorry, about, um, uh, I'm sorry, idolatry, he talks about superstitious worship. That's his big thing, right? Um, And that's also, of course, why they historically made the prohibition against images in the 10 commandments a separate commandment. Um, That's actually had The Orthodox, I believe, a number of them, but Lutherans kept the Roman Catholic numbering and just made essentially, you know, Worship of images, or something like that—an um, instance of idolatry, you know, maybe the one most prevalent in the ancient Near East, or something like that. But uh, you know, didn't consider it binding in the sense that you couldn't make church artwork, or uh, that you wouldn't even find that, that you wouldn't find God in physical things. Um, and that's really what Zwingli is when he's arguing with Luther is really worried about. Um, he's worried about superstitious worship. He wants to, he whitewashed all the churches. He got rid of all the organs uh, so that they would just sit and listen to his sermons for three hours uh, at a time. And, you know, uh, uh, so that they would uh, mentally ascend to God uh, in the form of pure worship. Um, So, um, so yeah, it's again, a very, very different uh, trajectory in terms of uh, their understanding
0: of idolatry, which which I think is, does connect with the image issue. Okay. I'm going to go through the chat and see if there's, Any questions we got in here for you? Okay. There's a question about Lutheran soteriology. Are you okay with taking questions about... Okay. Sure. So Ivan asks, I have a question. If we're already saved by faith and our actions have no sense, there's no spiritual battle to do right or am I wrong? I
1: mean you still have a sinful nature um, and you glorify God and show gratitude for the salvation you've been given by um, not succumbing to your sinful nature. In fact, it would really run contrary to faith itself because faith is trusting in everything that God has said. And if he says that sinful things are not good for you, then you can't exactly say, well, I guess I trust you on the whole salvation thing, but telling me that adultery and murder and so forth are not good for me, yeah i'm pretty skeptical about those so, so i mean um so uh, actually so faith itself as luther says is the fulfillment of the law so um when you when you obey god you're expressing your faith because um faith is trust trust that god wishes the best for you okay particularly in offering salvation to you in jesus and the ten commandments are just a list of things that are not good for you so uh, you can take them as a set of rules that you have to uh, try to achieve or you can see them as a promise about the things that God is promising you are not good for you and that he wishes you're good. And if you trust that those are not good for you, then you will strive to obey to, to obey those commandments. so as an expression of your faith.
0: Yeah, and this gets us in uh, deeper into questions yeah. over the differences between Reformed and Lutherans, and then uh-huh. Catholics and Orthodox, and everybody when right. it comes to the uh, the usage of the law itself. Right. Sure. Okay. So, oh, did you? I, I I don't remember this part. Did you call somebody numb nuts? I did not. Yes, I didn't. I didn't hear that. Maybe it's you You cut out a few a few parts and uh grobbled a little bit. Maybe they thought that. Okay. So sorry. No. He did not. So this is this is related. So how likely if at all does Dr. Kilcrease believe salvation to be for Nestorians, Eutikians, and Neopolinarians? Ah well. I mean, I'm. I i do not know that I would uh, speculate on other people's salvation. I will say this:
1: as um, uh, in my denominational tradition, the Missouri Senate, we talk about something called um, a happy inconsistency or felicitous inconsistency. So, um, so that people can have the essence of their faith right, and then get certain things wrong. And um, I, 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 I hope that there is an element of felicitous inconsistency that in some, on some level, that even though they may have errors in certain points of their understanding of the person of Christ that in fact, they really do have a living relationship with Christ and um, uh, that they will be saved. But I don't know that I'm going to speculate necessarily. I, I would say this, I wouldn't have fellowship with them. So we would not be communing together. So, because we don't agree about fundamental Christian doctrine.
0: So that's all I can say about it. So Elijah, and he's coming from a Catholic background, but did the other early reformers, he puts that in quotations because he comes from a Catholic background, sure. hold to different Christologies than Luther. Uh, yes, like uh, Calvin and Zwingli um, did not agree with
1: Luther's view that the divine nature um, uh, communicates itself to the human nature. Um, so that they uh, that's one of the reasons they rejected the Eucharistic presence, because they believe that Christ's humanity can only be in one place at one time. So.
0: So yes, though they both agreed with him on the, that there were two natures in one person and all that sort of thing. Okay. I'm not seeing any other questions in the chat. So do you have anything else you would like to uh, leave our listeners with? Uh, No, I I really appreciate being um, uh, asked to uh, come on and talk about one of my
1: favorite subjects. And, um, you know, it's a very good and I think productive and respectful discussion. So I was very pleased that you invited me. So thanks a lot.
0: And what was the name of your book on Christology? Uh, The Self-Donation of God. Yes, I have that in Kindle. So Self-Donation of God, if you guys Mm -hmm. would like that, I'll remember to put that in the description of this video below. And I will talk to you guys later. And have a nice night.